0: and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. I'm your host Steph. I'm the deputy head of the Aberdeen Research Institute. And On a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about our gender equality research, A Woman's Place. And the idea behind this research is really making it clear the case for governments and for companies to take action to boost female participation in order to boost long-term outcomes. And we talked before about the absolutely crucial role that parental leave, particularly for fathers, has to play in terms of boosting female participation in the workforce. But policymakers and companies can do more to create opportunities to reduce the barriers to women in the workforce, both in terms of the decision to participate at all, and also in how many hours they choose to work. So joining me today to talk through our latest research findings is Abigail Watt, a research economist here at Aberdeen. Thanks very much for joining again, Abby. Thank you for having me back so we have been working on this for a year and a half now but i think it's worth going back right to the start because naturally sometimes the conversations about gender equality can be can can merge into the sort of ethical side of things which of course there are very strong ethical arguments but there are also really strong economic arguments and i think one assumption that's sometimes made is that everyone has equal opportunities and women just just choose and there aren't these barriers. So is it worth maybe just starting out by talking about how different we see the figures for women depending on their personal circumstances in terms of determining how likely they are to work?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting if we look at the data. Um, I mean, you can see in every OECD economy that Female participation rates are lower than male participation rates when you look at the aggregate. But what's really interesting is if you dig into the detail of participation rates by kind of household situation of women, you can see some really stark differences, even I guess across across uh, the household types within women. So if you look, if you look at that, you can see that 82% of single women living alone participate in the labor market. But then if you look at women who are living with a partner this drops down to 64 percent and then if you look at women who are living with a partner and have children that drops even lower to uh, around 50 percent and then wow. it's even kind of more stark if we compare that to men's death.
0: right yeah because there I mean we're not talking about the same kind of numbers at all as far as I remember every no matter what a man's household situation is his percentage begins with a 90 right
1: yeah so yeah so the kind of overall participation rate of men is around 90 percent um if they're living alone and then interestingly actually rises when they live with a partner so that goes up to 94 percent and then again it increases even further if they are living with a partner and have children and that goes up to 96 percent so there seems to be really different implications for men and women depending on their household situation
0: and that's super interesting to me because I think it tells you something about the responsiveness of men and women to incentives but also maybe the incentives that exist that we can't see or that we're not that aware of sort of invisible barriers to entry and invisible barriers to being involved in the workforce. I was interested as well and a big part of the research this time around was not just around gender on its own but actually the kind of the impact that it can have on women from different ethnic backgrounds. And in particular, we know that particularly Black and Hispanic women are much more likely to leave the workforce or reduce their hours um, than women without children and indeed men, as you said, with or without children because of issues like childcare. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but first off, sometimes tax can feel like a really dull topic. And maybe that's why it flies so low kind of below the radar when it comes to conversations about gender equality you know it's not the sexiest thing to talk about but Abby obviously our work has shown that tax is an important component to consider what kinds of tax barriers are there what ways should we be thinking about this in terms of I suppose hours worked
1: versus kind of being in the workforce at all? That's exactly right and uh, when we did our original research we looked at the decision to participate at all and the influence that some uh, average tax burdens can have on on kind of female and male uh, choice to participate in the labour force. Um, So we originally looked at average tax burdens and we focused in on two household types in particular. Um, What we looked at was the the tax burdens for households in which there's two earners and um, households have children. So the kind of relative burden where you have a second earner in a household Um, And we found that that was kind of negatively related to participation rates for women. Um, So this basically suggests that the the kind of higher the relative tax burden is for households where there's two earners, um, the lower female participation would be on average. Um, And then the other area that we looked at in the original work was we we considered the average tax burdens for um, single parents. And with women much more likely to be the single parents, um, around 80% of single parent households are led by women in the OECD. Um, we, we found that that also was negatively related to um, female participation. Um, and interestingly, there has been a lot of progress made in the OECD over the past 20 years in terms of the relative burden faced by single parents. But that's not necessarily the case in terms of the relative burdens that's faced by um, second earners and, and those people who are um, the second earners in, in households where you have two, um, two earners. And then, I mean you You mentioned the 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 difference in the implications for kind of hours worked as well. Um, if we look at hours worked, there's other measures of the tax system that that kind of are more appropriate to look at. So, for example, looking at marginal effective tax rates is 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 likely a better measure. So i I mean, I think what really strikes me about that is obviously the
0: the evidence is that average tax women facing average tax rates is a disincentive to work to be in the workforce. But in terms of the actual numbers that we put into the report, what was really striking is that there is a higher tax burden faced by two earner married couples with two kids versus a single earner married couple with two kids. So it's it's genuinely um, visible across basically all, uh, nearly all OECD countries, you see this kind of gap coming through. And that was In a way like quite surprising that there is a genuine tax barrier to work which says if you have a second earner the average taxes your household faces will be higher
1: yeah and it's it's worth knowing that it doesn't just come through the kind of increased actual tax bill um it also comes through a a loss in qualification for benefits as you increase the amount of hours you work and you increase participation in the in the labor force Right. That makes sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And then obviously, as you kind of mentioned, single parents do actually face kind of lower average taxes than single people without children. So there does seem to be it seems like policymakers have gotten that bit sort of right. Is that fair? They're more aware of the single parent challenge, maybe?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the case that across um I think every OECD economy, uh, the, the the barrier for participation is is kind of lower for single parents when we're looking at that specific metric.
0: Okay, cool. So that's, I guess that's the, the incentive to be in the workforce or indeed not be in the workforce. So then in terms of the hours you want to work, obviously, um, We've done a little bit more work into the effect of marginal effective tax rates. And so for the non-economist listeners to this podcast, can you just briefly explain
1: what marginal effective tax rates are? Yeah, so if we're looking at the marginal effective tax rate, what we're thinking about is the additional tax that's going to be paid um, as you earn an extra dollar. Um, and what, what we're looking at with, with this metric is if I increase my hours from 50% of full-time to 100% of full-time, how does that change my overall tax bill? Um, and as I mentioned just, just a, a second ago, it, it also considers the, the kind of qualification for benefits as you increase those hours worked as well.
0: Right. So that's, again, an important component is is there are incentives. There can be incentives in certain systems to basically not not increase hours. Is that essentially... What you found, I mean, we're looking at marginal effective tax rates. How significant is it if you go from 50 to 100 percent? How significant is the challenge that that creates in terms of hours worked?
1: If we look at the marginal effective tax rates for uh, single parents in particular, they can be very prohibitive. um, And in a number of OECD economies, Mm -hmm. these are over 50 percent. If we if we look at the, the marginal effective tax rate, And the the key component of that is that qualification for benefits. Um, A lot of OECD uh, economies have quite generous policies around uh, the provision of childcare benefits and um, benefits for children uh, within households. Um, And so that kind of loss of those benefits as uh, single parents increase their hours worked um, plays a a larger role in, in increasing that marginal effective tax rate. And so then, if we go on to the the last kind of tax element of of our research,
0: it was around the effect of joint tax filing, which you know again, to to a greater or lesser degree, depending on where you live, maybe something you know that you you never even considered. Um, but it's interesting that our research did find that there is a a sort of an impact on participation from how jointly taxes are are filed together.
1: yeah. So um, when we consider the jointness of the tax system, this is basically whether uh, households file their taxes jointly or whether you file as an individual. Um, And one of the interesting things is that this means that the, the second earner's income and tax bill becomes a function of the first earner's income. Um, which means that, uh, you know, as a if you file jointly, you can face a much higher tax rate uh, than you would if you if you filed individually. Um, and it's not necessarily just taxes as well. It's also the case that like in certain household situations, your qualification for benefits might be different. So, for example, marriage allowances and things like that will also impact um, impact, I guess, your 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 desire to work as well um if we're thinking about incentives um and it's really interesting because there is some kind of cross-country evidence looking specifically at the impacts of this kind of jointness of tax systems and the implications of that for the number of hours that that men and women choose to work um and what what that research actually found was that um on average um women's hours um married women's hours would increase by 10.5% if those systems were to shift from a, a joint taxation mm. to an individual taxation. Um, it does differ obviously across countries, but that was the kind of average effect that was found. Um, wow. And in a number of OECD economies, these are still the policies that are in place.
0: Wow. Gosh, that's really quite, quite significant. And I think just in terms of summarizing then, so on the tax side. You know, we know average tax rates matter, and we know that as it stands, many systems um, disadvantage dual earner kind of two children households versus a single earner ch- two children household. Um, we know that marginal effective tax rates, it sounds like, are important for hours work, but the policymakers have more of an eye on, on that. Um, and then around the jointness, clearly joint taxation can have an impact on, on the likelihood that women work as well. So it's really quite quite striking stuff. and. What's related to the question, I think, of whether women work or not and why women are self-selecting out and crucially the impact of having children that we talked about right at the beginning is that impact of, of who minds the child. And I was really struck when we started doing this research that, you know, there's, there tends to be from kind of the age of four upwards, depending on the country you live in, there's pretty much kind of full-time education from the age of four upwards is standard kind of provided by the state. And again, depending on the country you live in, mothers tend to be given somewhere between, you know, a couple of months, maybe up to even a couple of years, depending on the system that they're in and the employer they work for, for maternity leave. But it does create this gap in this period of time where you've got kind of kids aged kind of two through potentially five without kind of free state kind of care for the most part. You don't have across the board, across countries, a globally acknowledged kind of state pre-education system just doesn't tend to be the case. Obviously we know there are exceptions, but, but we also as a society really believe that those that children of that age should be taken care of, right, they're toddlers. <laughs> they're generally not supposed to be left alone. So it does, it's also a natural question to ask is, you know, if not a parent and, you know, the, the gender biases and the policy barriers that exist mean it tends to be women then who, you know, and and we know in some countries there's more informal childcare that takes place. But the second part of this research was very much around kind of women with children and particularly how you address that childcare gap. So in terms of the two big gaps, Abby, it's maybe worth us highlighting the challenge when it comes to cost and then the challenge when it comes to to supply, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Clearly, there's there's going to be an implication for for women's ability to participate in the labor force with that big chasm of time where where the child has to be looked after and, and taken care of, um, and there was some really interesting research out of the U.S. that that we'd highlighted in the report where we were considering the implications of not just childcare costs but also the the kind of quality of childcare. And then the the final element as well, which maybe you didn't touch on there as well is the supply of that childcare um, in terms of access.
0: Yeah, yeah, spot on. And in particular, so this was a piece of research done by the Center of American Progress and it was really super useful research. And again, it broke down not just in terms of gender, but also in terms of background, in terms of kind of uh, ethnic background, but also economic status, a couple of different ways. And I thought what was really interesting was the idea that that kind of across the board, particularly in the United States, and unfortunately that's where the best data is on this, ironically, because it has such substantial issues when it comes to childcare access. So it's difficult to compare across. but to start with the US anyway, cost was cited as kind of a major um, concern and problem for households pretty much across the board. I mean, naturally, the higher the household income, the less of an issue it was, which makes sense. Those kind of high-income households were more concerned about access to high... um, access to open slots and high quality uh, when it comes to, to child care, which again just reflects I think the realities of that. But what we also saw was that in a, a 2018 survey, 51% of African American mothers and 48% of Hispanic mothers said that they would look for a higher paying job if they could get affordable, reliable health care. Um, and 20% of mothers who were surveyed who weren't currently working would look for a job if that safe, affordable childcare was available, which I think is just really quite astounding and tells you something about the potential benefits that the female female labour force participation could provide if more women were in the workforce. If you had you know tw- 20% of mothers who aren't currently working saying that they would go back, that's really quite striking. And we also know that, as we talked about earlier, it's not just about being in the workforce, it's also about... um taking on, as I mentioned, higher paying job, taking on more hours, that kind of thing. It's all it's all very much related. So I Abby, mean, maybe, obviously we talk a lot about the US. I think the data in the US is really useful and interesting because you get that nuance. And in particular, that there are real challenges that African-American and Hispanic households face, and in particular mothers. But in terms of childcare costs writ large, let's talk a little bit about the challenges across OECD economies because the U.S. Is, is not in a great position, but it's not the only country that is.
1: That's exactly right, Steph. There is quite a lot of divergence across economies in terms of childcare costs. Uh, the U- U.K. stands out in particular as somewhere where um, childcare costs can be quite prohibitive. Um, in particular, for uh, two-earner uh, married couples, we can, we can see that it's, it's kind of over 50% of women's medium full-time earnings would go to childcare costs which is incredible um, right
0: like imagine 50 percent of your pay is like what is your incentive to work if all over half of it is going to be spent on childcare, which you're having to pay for because you are working you know it's such an such a kind of doom loop that you get into I guess
1: yeah exactly and then you link that in with some of the other elements of the the tax and benefit system that we've found have also kind of negatively impacted that that kind of incentive to to re-enter the labor market um or even to increase hours worked and it kind of just um kind of builds um builds up a story as to why we can see such such low participation rates of women across these different household situations
0: yeah, totally and it's worth, I mean, a, a bit of a, I guess, a warning is we did look across OECD countries, but so many of the data points were like specific cities, which makes it harder to give really kind of broader views on the kind of, you know, number of European countries and major markets. But the point I think very much still stands and where we saw kind of contentiousness around, is this the right number or the wrong number on childcare? Usually there was upward pressure on the number. It wasn't we didn't find the case where there was a country that was showing numbers that were much higher than was the reality in the country, which I think is is super important. So maybe just to finish up, obviously, we've talked a lot about cost. Obviously, supply is a huge problem as well. Either way, in terms of solutions, which is what this research is, is all about, is trying to find solutions to boost female participation, not just kind of complain about all the problems, although we've spent plenty of time doing that. I think there are a couple of really good options so one is just around childcare provision. So governments have import, have an important role to play. We know from the evidence, the empirical evidence that exists that it is better to have kind of direct provision rather than things like um, kind of cash benefits, just in terms of, they help with like poverty alleviation, not, but not directly childcare access. So direct provision by governments tends to be the most um, kind of effective way of ensuring that childcare takes place. But at the same time you know it's 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 worth mentioning that that is extremely costly and um, requires quite a wholesale change in in provision across a number of countries which which is really tough We also talk a little bit in the research about the importance of kind of companies having to fill that gap because governments are so so far behind Abby
1: yeah exactly um, we we have we've suggested in the in the report that companies could go uh, some way to to kind of try and provide childcare options for their employees um, I mean there's we haven't been able to to kind of do any empirical work on this because again we don't have a, a view of of kind of what those policies look like where companies are providing um, child yeah. care for employees um, so it's it's hard to kind of tangibly say what the positive impact is but you would expect that there should be kind of some positive externality for the company in terms of employee retention and I guess employee satisfaction as well from providing that yeah
0: exactly exactly and I think not just in terms of gender equality, but also in terms of ethnic diversity and inclusion, which is increasingly important to companies, right? Given that we know the realities around the challenges that that people from those backgrounds face. I think we talk a little bit about the options companies have. So we see quite a spectrum between kind of paid caregivers leave, which is just kind of creating the space for when something goes wrong. So this isn't really kind of ongoing childcare. It's just if there's an emergency. The word of warning we kind of apply to this, though, is it might provide temporary relief, but it can also reinforce gendered care work trade-offs because, on average, women have greater caring burdens, and so it's more likely that it's it's the woman who takes the caregivers' leave on an emergency, and that might reinforce some of those gendered kind of kind of uh, assumptions about who takes care of the children and and, and elderly parents and things like that. Otherwise, we looked at things like subsidies for childcare. So some companies provide subsidies to help to foot the bill, um, which can be helpful. Um, that we also find backup childcare is a pretty popular option for some of the large tech companies, which basically means working with a large childcare provider network to give staff kind of several hours or days of backup childcare when they need, which can be in home or in centre, depending on the programme. And then obviously the sort of the theoretical gold standard, which speaks to some of the the government um, implications as well, is on-site childcare. So that idea of there are a small portion of companies who provide childcare, On site, Obviously, this is very logistically challenging and costly to run, but for companies that can can action it, the solution is particularly helpful to smooth the transition from maternity leave back into the office and are particularly relevant in particular where these kind of childcare deserts where there just aren't good alternatives. Now, we don't make, as Abby said, we can't do any research as to which works best. We can just make kind of educated um, assessments of what the potential benefits are. But overall, I think our research continues to point to the need for greater understanding both by companies and by policymakers around the invisible barriers to women, both working and returning to work, particularly after having children. And we continue will continue this work throughout 2022. We're at the moment uh, finishing up a piece of work looking at parental leave policies at the FTSE level actually. We went to companies and surveyed them. So we'll come back on this podcast and talk about it again soon. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Abby, for joining. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have left for this week. Um, But if you'd like to find out any more about our research into gender equality, you can check out the A Woman's Place landing site on the Aberdeen website. And please do join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll be switching gears to explore the impact of the Omicron variant On the economic outlook, so please do join us then. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation, or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein, and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns return projections or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.